You're on Radio 1, 91 FM, your weekly politics show. And joining me on the phone right now, uh, I have the privilege of an elder statesman of New Zealand politics, uh, one of the kinds we like to talk to here at Politrix, uh, and no stranger to controversy, uh, Sir Bob Jones. How are you this morning, Bob? Great to have you with us. Now, um, you've been in the headlines, well... Sometimes they have nothing else to talk about, and uh, you're well known for making uh, controversial comments about. No, not, they, t- t- they turn perfectly normal comments <laughs> into controversy, which is why newspapers are dying out. Yeah, yeah, and and that isn't really what I wanted to talk about no. today, so I don't think we'll we'll dwell on that. But I just, uh, you know, it's worth mentioning, and um, you know, you're very. Uh, you know, you speak straightly, you say what you mean. Uh, One of the advantages of age, Abe, you haven't got time to mess around. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but but the, the thing that I really wanted to talk to you about is, you know, you kind of were the uh, third party in New Zealand politics uh, before it was a thing, uh, and unfortunately before it counted uh, due to MMP. But you seem to have a lot of insight on... The New Zealand political psyche, the seesaw, yeah, back and forth. It's significant. I say significant that they, they acted as a mop for disenchanted voters from the traditional two parties. And that was social credit. So we did, they were formed in the 50s. And it was all based around a, a monetary theory that, in fact, they, they garnered so much support initially that there was a Royal Commission into it and it dismissed it as nonsense, the theory, which it is, I might add. This is the Douglas social credit theory, but it still goes, lingers on in Christchurch in New Zealand. And it sort of attracted nutters. They were figures of fun. I'll tell you how crazy too many of them were. The, um, the Staff of Truth, which was in the 70s, our major newspaper, it was a serious newspaper, but outspoken. It was our biggest circulation newspaper, over 300,000 sales every week. They negotiated danger money to attend their conference. They were pretty weird people, but I divert. So we had, there was a precedent. And then there was the Values Party in 72, and they had influence on the incoming Labour government. And now, the New Zealand Party, um, of which, you know, you guys got something like 20%. Uh, no, we, didn't. we got 12 and a half. 12 and a half. Uh, well... In first past the post, I was up against Longy uh, and Muldoon, you know, two sort of significant uh, political figures. It was a watershed period for New Zealand. We, I, I have to tell you this, I didn't like doing it. I mean, I grew up, you know, in a working-class environment and heard the, the fables and table, tales and whatnot about the 1930s and the 1935 government and the huge crowds they drew. And I'm not bragging, but it, it does reflect something. That was the last election that where we all went around campaigning. After that, it became TV and advertising. And, um, you know, every night you were there, every lunchtime you were speaking somewhere. And I broke all those records I used to hear my dad about. It wasn't, they didn't come to hear me. They were desperate. There was an air of desperation in New Zealand in the, in the early 80s. Nobody had any faith in Labour. They had given no indication what they were going to the radical reforms they were going to do, which in fact was the New Zealand Party uh, program. Um, and so people were desperate. So they wanted to hear any third voice. And the thing just sprung up. Uh, the, the professional people across the country formed branches everywhere. You know, I found myself riding a real tiger by the tail. I mean, I remember being in Dunedin once, and uh, there was a, I was having breakfast in the Southern Cross, and there were a bunch of journos there, radio and press and that. And they said, what did you think of what happened in Queenstown last night? I said, what happened? They said, oh, there was uh, a huge turnout to form the new, a branch of the New Zealand Party. Well, they didn't. They just did it on their own initiative, lawyers and things down there. And that was happening across the country. So it reflected the times. 
Um, it certainly wasn't a reflection on me. And this, I didn't like doing it, though. It's an unpleasant business, adversarial politics. But that whole um, sort of episode, I guess, can be seen as, uh, you know, the, the discourse around that as the precursor to what eventually led us to MMP. Uh, the New Zealand party, I guess... Was I, I don't think that's quite right. I think what led us to MMP was, lie, was the politicians telling lies. As a general pro, pro, politicians always branded as lies. I remember writing a piece re, uh, a couple of years ago saying, look, as a general proposition, that's simply not true. Uh, and it's not true. But every now and again, a politician does lie. And what happened was the Labour government came in and adopted the New Zealand Party policies. They hadn't given an inkling of that. I remember when the economic policy came out, it was on cypher-styled sheets. Bear in mind, it was a snap election in 84. Mm. And whereas we had printed a 32-page glossy booklet, and it made no mention of all the things they went on to do under Douglas, all of which, you know, saved the damn country as far as I'm concerned. I mean, after all, I would say that, wouldn't I, because they were the, the, they're straight out of our book. But... Um, uh, they, they talked about, you know, a fair go to all those sort of old-fashioned platitudes. Uh, but uh, people were so fed up with Muldoon, and I, uh, my party split the vote, you know, significantly. And uh, so they came in with a landslide. I think they got a bit of a thousand-year Reich mentality, too. It was such a big landslide, and I thought they could do anything. And uh, it was a tragic, uh, it was a wonderful government, you know, a wonderful reforming government, both socially and and economically, but it didn't go just to economics. I mean, it might surprise you to know the school leaving age was 15 then, and I used to campaign on that. Every speech I gave, I said, look, the future that's looming will have no place for a pair of hands. You know, we've got to increase the education standards. I was advocating lifting it to 18, and I'll be down shortly. And uh, the... Um, uh, they lifted the 16 straight away once they won power. But they gave no indication of what they were going to do. That terribly dismayed old traditional Labourites. I could tell you many anecdotes of that, uh, how upset they were. The trade unions in particular, they, they got a bit bloody snobby. And <laughs> it's a long story. And people were very upset. And that led to Jim Anderson forming the breakaway New Labour, I think, whatever he called it, mm -hmm. uh, which was really old Labour. And that attracted the hard left. And that kept Labour split for a while. Uh, and so on. So there was, people were upset on the left, if you like, of the, of the New Zealand politics that they'd been lied to. And then Longy boasted about it. Um, after the, uh, in the early 90s, he was a guest speaker at the press club in Melbourne, I'm uh, sorry, in Canberra. And he said, if you're going to do anything radical, for God's sake, don't tell the public. Well, that's a pretty bad thing to say. <laughs> I don't believe he knew they were going to do it, actually. I knew him reasonably well. I think that Douglas and that, he, David just enjoyed swanning about, and Douglas and that set about with a free reign. Mm. Um, but you see, they were, people were upset. Now, Bolger then campaigned. There was a very contentious issue at the time going on, and Bolger repeatedly swore he wouldn't do something. And as soon as Max Bradford went to him, I know Max, he was, you know, potential shadow finance minister or associate finance minister, as indeed he became. And he said, why are you saying that? You know it's not true. And so Ruth Richardson and Bolger, uh, and Ruth was going to be the finance minister, and they said, who cares? You know, once we're in office, this sort of, they deliberately lied. People were very disenchanted with politicians. And that's helped Winston along, of course. Yeah, well, he, that's... He left and broke away and, and won a by-election. And people were just generally... At, so the, the MMP vote... Um, it was pretty close, but the interpretation of it, I mean, Rudd really doesn't know until everybody will ask every single voter, but the general sense was that they just wanted, as most of the politicians didn't want it, I campaigned it against it with Helen Clark, 
and Tony Ryle and um, you know, in meetings. As politicians, and what they might have viewed as the establishment, didn't want to have MMP, the, you know, a sizable percentage of the public said, well, bugger them, we'll give it to them. I'm not, the, the general received thinking now is it was a good thing. I'm not so sure I'm certain about that. Obviously, it has its, it's a bit like Brexit, good and bad. Yeah, well, it's led to this situation now where that uh, voter discontent can actually be translated into members of parliament. Uh, we've seen it strengthen so Winston. What does it achieve? Well, I, I guess the, the thing that I'm, I'm really interested in is your opinion on some of these. Um, you know, you have been likened in the media, rightly or wrongly, uh, to the, New Ze- the closest thing we have in New Zealand uh, to Trump. Yes, I find that quite extraordinary. Uh, I, I don't know if it's because of his, in a similar sort of act, commercial activity. As one of his biographers said, uh, he very much doubts Trump's ever read a book. I doubt if many people in New Zealand read as many books as I do. I read about 150 a, a year. I have, that's what I do with my time. That's what I'll be doing today. I read all day, every day. It's my primary hobby. People say, how do you find the time? I say, well, look, am I add up the time you spend looking at TV. Every morning when I read the paper, I look at what's on TV, and I marvel that anyone watches any of it. You know, it's such crap. Yeah. So reading a lot of books. Now, it's, you know, I could go on. Trump is incredibly ignorant. I don't think he's stupid. I'll say that. I think he's quite bright. But he's unbelievably ignorant. He's demonstrated that repeatedly in many of the things he said. Um, he's crass. I don't, don't think people would call me crass. Somewhat, <laughs> um, somewhat, I think. Lies. Uh, <laughs> he, he deliberately tells lies. Um, he's cheap, <laughs> you know, sure. in, in the way he does things. So I think it's subtle differences. Comparison. Now, because the, 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 like what we have had in New Zealand. Uh, as far as, you know, people with financial largesse dipping their toe in the water of politics. Uh, last time we had Kim.com. This time we're going to have Gareth Morgan. Uh, what are, what's your comment on either of those characters well, in New Zealand I think politics? Gareth needs psychiatric help. I think Gareth's principal motive is just sort of a cry to look at me, look at me, look at me. I can't. I mean, Gareth incites a great deal of, not anger, he just, he's irksome to people. It's always, oh, look at me, look at me. Anything that happens, he's got to get his name in, in the paper, this sort of thing. Uh, and so I don't think there's any hatred for it, but there's certainly no, no great love and no affection for Gareth at all. There's a general respect for him. I think he's, he's come up with some pretty stupid policies, in my view. Opposite uh, end of the spectrum from you and what the New Zealand Party sort of, uh, as far as a rich guy getting into politics because they're dissatisfied with Labour and National, you thought National uh, was too left. What's that, sorry? In fairness to Gareth, that's not his position, dissatisfied, dissatisfied with them. He believes there's some very good changes that he believes are very good. I don't that he has proposed, and he feels if he runs a, a, a you know a splinter group, he may well get into a balance of power situation. And indeed, we could well be in a very marginal situation uh, after this year's election. And he can influence them to do some of these things. He 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 says he personally doesn't want to go into parliament here, and I can imagine him he'd hate it. So would I. He doesn't <laughs> uh, want any political power. He just wants to be an influencing factor. So it's a it's a pretty different sort of scenario that he's advocating. Um, but you know, I mean, I teased him rather cruelly early last year. You, you, I mean, all the papers ran on the front page, including the Otago Daily Times, when I wrote the the fake letter to the mayor. 
proposing erecting a, what was it, a 3,000 metre statue of, of Gareth. <laughs> it was a good illustration too. You know, rather like the Rio one, the Redeemer statue over yeah. the city and, and, you know, the University of Gareth Morgan studies. I mean, I, I can't help it. He, I always take the mickey out of Gareth because he incites it. I mean, I'm not alone. You know, the Tui billboards, you have Tui billboards, don't you, in Otago? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had a beauty. It said, it, it, the message read, shh, I want to hear what Gareth's got to say. <laughs> yeah, right. And that summed it up. People are fed up with Gareth having an opinion on anything. Politics allows him to have, uh, legitimately have opinions and uh, proper opinions on all sorts of things, as does writing a column. It's, uh, somehow it's, it's a... It's, I'll tell you another thing he lacks. He, he lacks any human warmth. There's that awful grimness about the man. You've got to be able to laugh. Winston has got away with murder for 40 years now because he can laugh at himself. Sure, sure. Yeah, everyone... It's a funny business politics, and you've got to remember, it's not just... It's, there are a lot of factors coming. It's not just reason and common sense. You've got to have other, fa other things to succeed at it as well. And one of the most important is the ability to laugh. I was reading a John Updike novel the other day, and I saw a very interesting line there. Uh, they had one of the characters say, the thing I, th I really liked about Reagan, and I think it was the key to his success, was that he made everyone feel he liked them. And I thought that was a very interesting remark. Mm -hmm. But you see, I've lived through every Labour and national government that there has been, and, and one can look back and see a very, very clear pattern, and each fell a very important role. Labour changed the country socially and economically when the extreme need arises to do so. They did it in the 30s introduced the welfare society, etc. They did it again. People don't realise that they, the, the 57, 60, you wouldn't have been here, eh? But Labour no. government, Walter <laughs> Nash, led, um, they, they did a significant thing. A man called Phil Holloway, their minister, who would have been their next leader, but that's like diverting. Uh, he introduced, the Minister of Trade, Industries and Commerce, the department was called then, introduced pretty uh, high trade tariffs, and we were able to industrialise New Zealand, which may sound odd to people, but we do actually have a very big industrial base here, in our main cities, in Christchurch and Auckland, and indeed in Dunedin, and Wellington and that. We sell a lot of high-tech stuff uh, mm. overseas, and... Um, and a lot, we, you know, we do do a lot of, I mean, I know, because we own a lot of the buildings, the buggers make them in over the years, you know, but, and there was a real boom in industrial buildings and, uh, you know, and building them and leasing them and whatnot in the 60s as a consequence. And, of course, it took another Labor government to change all that when it was appropriate to change it and may have open slather. Labor people uh, are people who are full of ideas. They're a bloody good dinner company. They're probably not great neighbours or spouses for that matter. National people are solid salt of the earth. They're content with the way things are and want to just manage to make sure it stays that way. They're never going to ever do anything radical. So every day and again we have a Labour government. But they only come in occasionally. If you look since 1950, I think they've had 24 years in the, in the last 67 in office, and it's every time they've done God's work of great changes, it all ends in, and then people want a long period of stability, people don't like changes, remember, people want certainties, so then that's coast along until we need another guy, and I don't think we're in that mood in New Zealand yet, but other factors come into it, personalities, leaders, this sort of thing, the leader factor comes into it. Well, there was a spectacular sort of uh, occurrence last election, we had a charismatic... Uh, we has a we had a charismatic uh, tech evangelist. No, I just can't hear you. You faded away. Oh, uh, can you hear me now? You got me now. If you could shout a wee bit. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, uh, I'm just wondering what you thought of our last election with the uh, appearance of charismatic tech evangelist Kim dot com uh, well, and I some of those libertarian ideas. I couldn't believe the 
I've had a little surprise hearing it coming from you down in Otago, because you see, the Wellington Papers gave uh, uh, Kim.com virtually no coverage, as was appropriate. Uh, but the Herald, the typical Herald misjudgment, uh, which is always shocking, they, you know, you'd have thought he was the major party. Indeed, Cunliffe complained that, he, that they were giving more coverage than him. Yeah. Uh, to, to Kim.com uh, than they were to him, which was not exactly an exaggeration. Uh, that was probably a blessing for Cunliffe. He, he, he was unfortunate. Uh, his face, people didn't like him. Mm. They didn't like the look of him. A friend of mine, Dave Margaret Clark, who was once had the honour of being our youngest uh, ever woman professor, and now it's probably our oldest, but I've known Margaret since 1957. But Margaret rang me up one day, and I think Margaret's broadly of the right, but she rang me one day and she said all her lefty friends at the university weren't going to vote for Cunliffe. This was quite earlier that election year because they didn't like his face, which was very interesting. I said, God, I'd love to run that. She said, publish it to my name. So I did. And it was true. And it, in fact, I remember when I wrote the thing on the Herald about that, I quoted that um, famous ditty poem by, uh, 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 I think he was an Oxford uh, student uh, 200 years ago about one of his... Uh, Tutors, I do not like the. What is it? I do not like the doctor. Uh, so the reason why I can Doctor Fell. That's it. I, I do not like the Doctor Fell. The reason why I cannot tell, but this I know. I know full well. I do not like the Doctor Fell, and that summed up the mood of the public towards. As some of my Labour Party colleagues told me, they, they encountered it everywhere. People would say, I don't like that man. And they'd say, why? <laughs> they couldn't tell him. Mind you, it wasn't helpful that it was you know, out in the open that his own colleagues couldn't stand him either. Um, <laughs> and so he's better out of it in public life. You know, some people just, it doesn't work. <laughs> well, one thing that I wanted to ask you, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you got a busy day ahead of you of you uh, getting all that uh, book reading in. Um, but one thing, you know, you've, you've made, uh, well, what have been described as controversial comments in the past about various groups, uh, one of them being protesters. But, but one uh, sort of issue that you seem to have lined up with uh, scruffy protesters on well before its time that's now kind of come full circle yet hasn't been dealt with in New Zealand um, is the issue of cannabis law reform. Uh, that's oh, an issue. Comment on that. Look, I'm a libertarian, and so naturally I would say do what you like. Don't bother other people. Conversely, I do think there's a role for the state to advise people on on things. I think they go too far. I get angry when I read it, just you know, floating. I don't want to see it go like New South Wales, floating of compulsory life jackets with you in a yacht. I mean, it takes all the joy of it. There's a lot of risks in life. You know, you can't go on removing them all by interfering, bearded buggers. I was asked to go and give a speech once, and as I hadn't been up there for a long while, I agreed to go to the Taranaki Safety Council. The the people who said to me, uh, who were writing me, they said, look, we, we, we'd love you to come, do the opening address, and then we'll show you this, and we'll show you that. And I thought, all right, I'll go up, and that'll be an enjoyable day. God, I get up there, I expect to see about 15 people. There were 500 bearded buggers sitting in front of me. This is Taranaki. <laughs> safety inspectors, it's completely over the top. You know, you can't walk up a ladder anymore. You can't do this. A farmer in Blenheim last year, in Marlborough last year, was fined $20,000 spotted riding his farm bike without on his own farm. 
without a helmet. This sort of intrusion into people's affairs, you know, I, I find that very bad. But I do accept there is a role for government. But I prefer it to be advisory. I don't like having compulsory seatbelts, for example, and I never wear one, um, just on principle. But on the other hand, I always wear one on the plane. Well, we have our own plane now, and I still buckle it up because it's sensible. But I don't like being bossed around about it. Sure, you know, it's sure. It's a cannabis thing. I'm, I just don't know. You know, a good friend of mine, Tom Scott, the cartoonist, he's done a hell of a lot of research. And the research does seem clear that it's extremely damaging for people. Well, so's boxing, so's mountaineering. People Rugby, yeah. Where do you draw the line? That's I, right. I, I'm afraid I'm vague on that one. I just, you know, I'd sort of say, why not let sleeping dogs lie? But then probably tobacco does a lot more harm. And I like the way they're working their way out of that through massive taxes. I mean, for me, who passes on the occasional pipe, a packet of pipe tobacco now costs $80, $85. Wow. And the same packet in America, in a supermarket, the retail price costs about 4 or $5, and so, so too in Europe. You know, for 4 or 5 euros, 4 or 5 pounds, it all seems to be about 4 or 5. And, that, and they even include taxes, but here they're doing it by a very oppressive tax regime because that's bringing in its wake a lot of problems because particularly with Maoris, poor Maoris, mm. who, the women particularly are hard smokers and they're using so much of their household budget. That's, and look at all the break-ins now to dairies now, wanting to steal soup. Yeah, we had two last night in Dunedin, that's right. Yep. So, I mean, it's like all these, these, it's always difficult to know where do you draw the line. I'm always very, very wary about new rules telling people what to do. And there's always a ready supply of buckets wanting to do these, introduce these new rules. Coroners are a real nuisance. I mean, I've always slammed them. Uh, but, you know, somebody does something stupid and they want to, they th they want to extrapolate that to all of us and have yes. us all protected. Yes, yes. You know, they don't recognize accidents or, or strange things as accidents and strange things. Yes. Um, and I've hammered them for years in columns about, you know, stupid, stupid requests and, uh, and that, that the council should do this or that. You know, an elephant escapes from a circus and tramples somebody. Or they, 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 they come out, well, everyone's got to build elephant proof fences. That, that's an extreme example, you know, I mean, obviously it's a made-up one, but, but that's my point. And you've got to be pragmatic and sensible about these things. I'll tell you the one thing I hope to see, and it's to live through to see, and its consequence, we debated a lot, because my company gets about, oh, somewhere like 20 million a year from um, an income from city car parks, you know, under our buildings. Sure. And so obviously we're interested in what, the driverless car thing, and and that, my New Zealand manager is adamant. He just says, look, people are still, the same people who pay us $150 a week for a car park in the basement are still going to want their own car. They're coming in from Remuera and Auckland, not terribly far, yet they're driving a $200,000 car, a 10000 one would do the job just as well. So, so those, you know, you're extrapolating all of that. Sure. They don't want their own car. But it'll be interesting to see. I don't think it'll be that, I think it's going to be pretty chaotic. Uh, well, yes, it's definitely a chaotic world, and we, we appreciate you taking the time to... You want to go back to Minnesota, Abe? Oh, no, no. I mean, New Zealand is New Zealand's doing great, and, and I enjoy it, and, um, well, yeah. Well, of course, no, it's a, it's a different world. I mean, Minnesota's pretty carbon conservative, isn't it? You might seek a bit of quietness. Mind you, it is interesting, and, of course, Trump inspired an awful lot. It'd be interesting to know how many actually came through, but very wealthy Americans, as you know, have always sought out the South Island. That's right, that's right. Uh, as havens. Uh, there won't be any havens anymore, you know, we know because of the enormous... I mean, you could turn New Zealand off, you know, through through computers. Mm. And I don't know what protection that, whether they'll ever be able to defend against this entirely. I do know that 
Auckland offers least a space to a government agency that's been set up to study the, the ways and means of protecting. Sure. Uh, you know, they're doing it. I guess most countries are doing this sort of thing. But, um, you know, this is what they call cyber warfare. Mm, mm. Mind you, you know, that was one of the things we read. The New Zealand Party had, did have one radical program, and that was my particular thing. And this is where I can, you can align me with Trump. And that was, I was really, really angry. Uh, about the Cold War, and it was sort of it reached the zenith circa 1980, about the you know sure. before we, and it just annoyed me. It was so bloody childish and silly. So I campaigned to wipe out our armed forces and emulate Costa Rica and, and whatnot. And um, by God, did that strike a chord with the people? I remember having been taken to lunch about 91 with the retired head of our armed forces, and uh, we both uh, neither knew we were. Uh, we thought we were the guest of a certain character in Wellington and found we were <laughs> putting us together. Well, of course, alcohol did its trick, and after a while, everyone felt happy. He told me that my campaign was so effective, they had huge difficulty recruiting through the 80s. You know, right. Cool. Oh, interesting. Uh, and so there, there's a commonality, and the only one I might have, I have with him. <laughs> Because I think he felt, well, he doesn't, he, he's certainly not uh, like I was, wanting to wipe out armed forces, very much the opposite. But this Russian thing, it yeah. just annoys me. I've totally. been going to Russia, I was there not long ago. I've been going to Russia since the 1960s. I like Russia. Uh, very pretty girls, as you know, but a lot of other good things going for them. I love what they I mean, I was in Moscow recently, and in fact, I'll pop back in April. Uh, because I want to go to Vladivostok because I've never been there and then I'm going to be heading um, west and I want, what they're doing there in the city is marvellous you can't do it in Dunedin, it doesn't lend itself to it but they're pedestrianising the whole of downtown it is just fabulous, they're doing a great job it's not just the pedestrianisation hanging lanterns on cables down every street overhead, it's like fairyland at night you know, they're turning into a beautiful city but this, this sort of evil Russian sentiment promoted in the west particularly in Britain mm. and in, in America, I find very distasteful. And, you know, it gets back to what I said before about the human factors, how about, you know, have not liking someone's faces or something. I think what the Russians should have done, just, I mean, look at ping-pong diplomacy, how it ended the absurdity with China. Sure. Simple thing like that. Simple things can do it. What they should have done, and they had, had plenty of bloody stock, was to round up a, a dozen anacorner covers and take them to America, and I guess their male equivalents, and and people would be wide eyed and say these are the this is the enemy, <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, and, and, uh, you know, human factors like that can make a hell of a difference, as we have seen. You know, with the ping pong diplomacy, what a ridiculous little trivia thing to end all that antagonism between China and the West. Sure, yeah. And I get very angry about that stuff, and I like what Trump says about that. And if it ends this bloody Russian bashing, and bashing based on lies like the invasion of Crimea, they didn't invade Crimea, it's an absolute lie. Uh, and so on, the only invasion, or the invasion of what the hell they call that place north of Georgia. Georgia, again, a lie. Right. I know the area oh, such, well, yeah. an absolute bloody lie. Uh, very much the opposite. And that complaint was being made about Russia at the time. The West was invading Syria on the basis of a lie. Mm. Uh, not Syria, um, uh, uh, Iraq. Right. So, you know, I, I'm always Trump on a lot of that stuff, but that's all. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to share your views with us. Oh, and uh, talking to you. I'm sure... Right down there. Oh, it's uh, it's a gale, uh, snow to 500 meters, um, typical Dunedin summer. 
Um, it's terrible what's happening in New Zealand. Well, we got the usual nonsense. I mean, I know it's very hard in New Zealand to do forecasting for obvious reasons. Ireland's in the middle of the sea. But we were told to stand by 180 mile winds, all this sort of thing, great storm. And it duly hit about 5 o'clock, fairly brisk, strong winds, passed over quickly, and now the sun's out. Oh, uh, I, think it's, I think it's still coming, uh, unfortunately for you, based on what I'm seeing out the studio window right now. But... Uh, Fingers crossed, Sir Bob, and uh, thanks for joining us. Okay, and nice talking to you. Yeah.